Bitcoin fixes the money. The Texas Beef Initiative fixes the food. It's time to fight for your lifestyle and your nutrition. This is Texas Slim's vision. Hey guys, this is Texas Slim of Texas Slim's Vision. Today we have Jason Rick of Jason Rick Ranches, and he's in Crawford, Colorado. It's a very cool place of Colorado. He's a first generation rancher, and he's got a hell of a story. We've met through Twitter. We've had a couple of conversations. Uh, we've getting to know each other, and the more we talk, uh, he he's definitely telling a story that I think everybody wanted to hear. So I wanted to get us together. We're going to try to do a about a three part series. Tonight's going to be about an hour, hour and twenty minutes. We'll just kind of keep it curious and lay a good foundation. How you doing tonight, Jason? Oh, I'm doing great. I mean, it's calving season for us. And uh, it's always exciting to see those new calves on the ground and them doing well and all those cows doing what they're supposed to be doing. So it's, it's a great time of year for us. That's uh, that's good to hear because it's, you know, it's January, you got snow, you got winter, you got the holidays. This is, this is a definitely a, a wonderful time, you know, in, in everything in, in your, your cycle of 12 months. I mean, you have stages that you go through. Let's talk about first so people can kind of know who you are. Tell your, tell your story, you know, you lay a foundation of who, who are we talking with tonight? Sure. Uh, my name is Jason Rick and my family and I, own operate rick ranches and i'm a first generation cattle rancher just like you said and i did four years in the marine corps then i worked in the underground coal mines for 15 years and that's actually when i started running my in-laws cattle ranch i had seen how it had been kind of beat up and abused by the conventional cattlemen and asked if i could lease it from them so initially I leased it from them and we raised and, and sold hay while we re regenerated the land and the soil. And um, then I thought it was foolish that we were shipping all those nutrients out. So we just decided to get into the cattle ranching business. And so I spent a whole year researching breeds and breed associations, marketability, um, and settled on Black Angus cattle. Number one, because of the fantastic job that they've done uh, marketing certified Angus beef. And then also they are well adapted to the conditions that we have here in Western Colorado. And so we actually started as uh, production with raising seed stock. We were selling registered Angus bulls. And, and my wife and I looked at each other and said, why are we selling all this beef off of this property when we could eat that beef ourselves. So we butchered our first steer, shared it with friends and family. And the thing is just kind of blown up from there. And then it also didn't take long, you know, through observational science. I, I love looking at the land. I love looking at the cattle and making breeding decisions and pasture move decisions and planting decisions based on what the land tells us. And so that took us a really deep dive into kind of getting away from the conventional cattlemen and, and getting into that grass-fed, grass-finished, all-natural um, type of product. And it, it's been a fun journey. It's been an interesting journey. It's been a very difficult journey. Um, but 
the the thing for me is I still love the genetics. We still sell registered Angus bulls, um, but the majority of our business is selling direct to consumer grass fed, grass finished beef. Yes. And I'm sorry, not to interrupt. Well, and, and and I mean, I guess another thing with that, my wife is an oncology nurse. And so she sees those sick people and talks to them about their habits, whether it's eating habits uh, and all of that stuff. And, and you can see how the people who eat healthy handle it so much better. And it's one of those things that's been a mission of ours to try and get that high quality protein into as many people's freezers as we can. Um, and it's it's one of those things that is just driving us to continue to build and do better and do more. There's a lot to uncover right there, and we're going to uncover all of that. And that was a good kind of an outline of, you know, where you started and kind of where you are. And especially through the years of the last 24 months, let's talk about, you know, being a first generation rancher in that part of Colorado. A lot of people don't know that part of Colorado. I've been through there a lot, you know, through, you got the, you got Crawford, you have Hotchkiss, you have Peonia, you have, uh, you know, there's some places out there. You have a couple of ranches out there, of course. So, you know, uh, you'll be able to explain that, but explain that part of the country uh, first. And whenever you got there, what, what made you, because you're from that area. So you kind of know it very well, but how, how was the transition into getting started? Because there's a lot of, a lot of people out there right now, they want to buy some land and they want to get into ranching. They just want to hear the story. Well, yeah. And that's a, that's an interesting story. Um, I was born and raised here and I have seen the evolution of this Valley. It went from the, the economy being 50% ag and 50% coal mines. And since the coal mines have started to go away, either to because they were regulated out of business or whatever else it happened to be, um, it's transitioned into a tourist destination. And so you see land prices where when I was a kid, I could have bought ranches and actually started ranching Whereas now properties that I could have bought when I was 21 for 150,000 are selling for two and a half million dollars. And it is people fleeing the city with cash in their pockets that are coming to this area because it is gorgeous. It is amazing. I mean, the sunrises and sunsets are million dollars every day. I can go an hour and a half one direction and downhill ski, and I can go an hour and a half the other direction, and I can mountain bike in the same weekend. That's the kind of mecca of outdoor recreation that I live in and that I am trying to run an ag-based business in. And so that in and of itself is a real struggle. Those multimillionaires moving in, though, have given me opportunity because most of them are absentee landowners that I can lease those properties for a cash lease. And as long as I keep it looking nice for them and I keep the fences up, they don't mess with me. And that's one of those things that don't don't ever paint yourself into a corner if you want to do something. You have to approach it with your eyes wide open, your ears wide open, and every single meeting you meet or you have is an opportunity. Look them in the eyes, 
shake their hand. It's one of those things where I tell you what, I have had opportunities walk up to me simply because I cared enough to open a door, simply because I said hello to someone on the street. It's one of those things where young people these days aren't being taught that, but I was taught that. And I love to have young people help me and work for me because then I can help them develop those basic personal skills, people skills that can then help them just get ahead in life. And and so, I mean, this North Fork Valley, that's what we call it. This Crawford, Hotchkiss, Paonia, North Fork Valley is amazing. I mean, you have mountains to the east, you have the desert to the west, you have Grand Mesa above that ski resort. It is, it is simply God's country. It it is a beautiful piece of property and we've been discovered. And um, so it is, it is a tough time to be a first generation farmer, rancher, um, unless you inherited the land or you have the people skills necessary to put those connections together and get on someone else's piece of land um, to make sure it works for you. Whenever you approach somebody like that, you have to come as the authority. You have to know what you're doing. You have to be very humble. You have to be purpose driven. You know, you have to create that alliance because, you know, it is leverage. That's what you're doing. You're finding ways to do that. You probably got into this and you weren't even thinking that I was going to be leasing land from these guys that have come in and kind of discovered that Valley. I used to, I used to go and hang out close to, I guess it's Smith Fork Ranch out there. It's kind of a resort and stuff like that. But Paonia, I love that area of the country, man. And, you know, you and I have been talking about that. We'll talk about it a little bit later for everybody else. But, um, you know, being that kind of, everybody looks, I saw your pictures you put up over Christmas. I mean, they are, they're postcards and everything. And uh, the thing about being lucky enough to do that, you're, you have a pretty good lifestyle and you're doing something that you absolutely love. And you're actually every day, you're finding ways to do kind of you're pioneering the new type of ranching. And I want to know more about that because, you know, we're going through all of this, you know, you know it better than anybody as far as the the beef industry, the manipulations, you know, the processing centers, the, the way you get your beef to your customers, everything is changing and it's changing fast. So there's a lot of opportunity to take advantage of this change. So kind of tell us how you're approaching this right now, as far as where you are in that part of the country and that part of the state and what you're basically trying to accomplish right now to be be able to push this even further? Well, I mean, you have to start with, if you're raising animal protein, you have to look at what the supply chain is. So before you purchase your first steer or pig or whatever, you have to make sure it has a place to go to be butchered before you even think about that. And so I actually helped a young man who wanted to start his own butcher shop in an existing butcher shop building. And so we sat down with him and I coached him because he had he had processed wild game before, but he'd never processed domestic animals. And so it was a steep learning curve. And luckily I had some really understanding customers who were willing to give him a try and give him opportunity to get his feet wet with it. And we worked together and, and it's worked out really well. It's opened um, opportunities for him both financially and professionally, as well as opportunities for me, because I can allow him to market some of that beef through his storefront that 
he just comes and gets them from me and I don't even have to deal with them. So it's one of those things where if you're going to look at this business, you got to make sure you know what the next step is going to be. And then the other thing that I found that is so important is consistency because every steer is a little different. They finish a little differently. You know, some of them need more feed. Some of them have more frame, more bone. It's one of those things where just through experience, you have to be able to learn how to look at them, how to schedule those butcher dates to get as much consistency as you can. So your end product is as consistent as it can be. Um, originally, I had planned to only farm the 260 acres that we live on, my mother-in-law's ranch here. And I quickly realized that if I was going to do what was best for the land, I was going to need to expand. And so I would go up, drive up and down the county road, and I would find the, the roughest fence and the most beat up properties. And I would go knock on their doors and introduce myself and tell them that I wanted to come and fix up their place for them. And most people said, no, you know, Joe Blow down the road leases this place. And, and I told them, I understand that. And I see what's happening. Um, do you think he's doing a good job? And they're like, well, I don't think he knows any better. I'm like, well, I do. And so if you're willing to lease this property to me, um, I will make it look nicer and I will get the fences fixed and I will do this and I will do that. And oftentimes when they told me what that rancher was paying them, it wouldn't even pay their taxes or their irrigation bill. And so to me, that wasn't a fair lease, number one. And number two, they weren't doing a good job. And so I would offer them what I thought was fair. And sure, I made a few enemies early on, but they leased adjoining properties as well. Well, if I fixed all the fence, the adjoining property that they leased was better because they didn't have to maintain the fence. And so we went from one to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. Whereas right now I started with 260 acres and I think registered with the FSA right now, we have almost 4,000 acres that I have leased. <laughs> How long did that take to get to that point? It took seven years seven from, years. from day one to today. Right. Um, knocking on doors, shaking hands and kissing babies. Have you enjoyed the ride? Even though it's been challenging, but you've, you've kind of developed a kind of a system here. I absolutely have enjoyed it. And honestly, for me, the relationships with the landowners, I mean, I lease quite a few widows ranches, their entire ranches and all of their husband's equipment. Like if there's anything usable, they're like, please use it. You know, we would be blessed to have you use our equipment. So there's places where I have tractors there for me to use to load hay or do whatever just in return for taking care of them and taking care of their properties. That's uh, that's, that's amazing because you know, that's, that's how our grandfathers did it. I mean, that's, that was just, it's old time ways, man. It's, it's, it's so cool to hear you say that because a lot of people are going to respond to that. We have to quit worrying about 
you know, everybody looks at all this, you know, from a digital footprint, because that's where people get their information. They do not understand the importance. Now, even within the beef initiative, I say you have to go out and look at somebody in their eyes. You have to start a conversation and you have to ask them, hey, I want to know more about what you've got going on here. Would you please teach me? I want to I want to help out. How can I help out even more? You're doing the same thing with these landowners because you're saying, you know, I'll improve. I mean, everything is a value add. It's value for value. And, you know, that's what, you know, a lot of people in our Bitcoin world. I mean, that's how they you know, that's how where ethos is. It's, it's value for value. Let's go figure it out. Value for value. I'm not going to get frustrated because I can't own all this dang land. What I'm going to do is leverage the situation that's around me. And you have to be versatile like that. And that's, uh, that's pretty cool that you, I, you had told me a little bit, a bit about that when we first didn't, you know, was introduced, but we'd never gone into it. So with 4,000 acres, how many cattle are you running right now? Well, you know, we've been in the midst of an extreme drought and what the basis for how many cows we can run is based on how much stored forage we can raise right. because a significant portion of that land about 2500 acres of that 4000 acres is all mountain pasture and so it's not improved hay ground that's for where your cows go in the summer and then where your fat steers go to finish off in the fall um so right now we're running 75 mother cows. I have, I think I only have seven steers left that I'm feeding for butcher and they're in various states of finish. We have 14 registered Angus bull calves that we'll be marketing this spring. And then we saved 14 replacement heifers as well. Um, but it's one of those things where I'm trying to find the sweet spot that I can continue to do this massive improvement of land and you have to have just the right stocking density and you have to have enough lead time and lag time from one property to the next to make sure that you allow all of those different species of forage to go to the maturity level they need to thrive. One of the properties that we're on, which is a showcase property, um, came to me in 2018 during that really, really bad drought. And it, and it was simply a blessing from God. I was selling beef at a farmer's market and this gentleman approached me and he says, I'm looking at buying a ranch in Crawford. It's in the shadow of Needle Rock. Would you be interested in doing what you do on that property? And I didn't know him from Adam. And of course, I don't know how many people have approached me like that. Like, well, we love what you do. We've seen what you've done on this property and that property and this property. Will you work with us? And so oftentimes they just want to talk. They have their friends from whatever city with them. And they're like, yeah, we know this guy and we like what he does. And that's, that's the last time I hear from them. Well, this guy called me, it was about six weeks later. And uh, he said, he actually texted me and he said, Hey, I closed on that property. I want to sit down and have, have coffee. And I didn't even remember who it was. <laughs> and so I responded with, well, I'm kind of busy right now. Who is this question mark? And he says, this is Doug. Uh, we met at the farmer's market. I closed on that property and I want you on it. And it was like, 
I knew the property. I knew the potential. I threw everything down and we went to town to have coffee at the coffee shop. And he said, this is what I want to do. This is what it looks like. Um, what do you think? And I said, let's do it. And so we've been working together now. This will be our fourth year. And I wish I had taken a lot more photos before I started, but the diversity of forage, the, I, the resiliency of the grass, it blows my mind. Every time I'm down there, it's like it's speaking to me. The land is going, thank you, thank you, thank you. I think I posted a short video um, on Twitter of the um, the uh, clover. Yeah, you did. I, I remember that. that. I, mm -hmm. I broadcasted and I let the cows plant it for me. And it is literally a field of clover interspersed with native grasses and improved cool season grasses. And it's on every property or every paddock on that property. And it, it simply, I, it can be done. It was, right. It's not that much work to build that electric fence. It's not that much work to move those cows, but the improvement, the, the, the uh, increase stocking rate density, tons of forage grown. I mean, it's to the point where we're having to hay some of those paddocks because they get so far ahead of the cows. Really? It's that, that's awesome. That's, <laughs> that's a, it's a good problem to have. It, it absolutely is a good problem. <laughs> You'll take that. Uh, yes. <laughs> you know, you, sure. you talked about building something, you know, you said you're, you're in the process of getting to kind of a, you know, I, I like to say kind of a rhythm of, you know, changing fields, everything that you do talk about what you're trying to accomplish there. Well, you know, everything has a season and most people in their right mind would not be calving in the snow like I do now. Mm -hmm. And the only reason that I do is because we sell our bulls at a consignment bull sale. I'm on the board of directors for the Western Colorado Angus Association. I was a sales manager for five years and they have to weigh a specific weight to be able to make it into this sale. So we calve early to make sure you don't have to push them really hard on feed to make sure they make weight. And so ideally for me, if I wasn't selling bulls, I would calve on green grass because I don't have to worry about short tails because they're frozen or short ears. I don't have to worry about any of those calving problems. Um, and so it's one of those things but having said that, to, to calve on green grass, those cows will be, will be bred on the mountain where they have huge pastures to travel. So to get them bred at any kind of really good uniform calving, you have to pen them up to make sure the bulls can get to all of them. And so that's one of those things where you have to try and find what works best for you time-wise what works best for you quality of life wise, and also what works best for you as far as, um, I mean, cause keeping a lot of bulls is expensive. They eat a lot, they love to fight and they love to tear stuff up. So if you can only have a few bulls and cover all of your cows, then you're way better off than having to have twice as many bulls to get your cows covered. And so it's one of those things where you, you're just trying to 
you adapt. You try something. If it works, you keep doing it. If it doesn't, you tweak it a little bit. And that's with everything, whether it's animal nutrition, uh, what kind of plants you plant, what your vaccination protocols are, how many calves you try and finish. It's one of those things where it's a, it's very fluid. It's always a moving target. And that's one thing that I found is resiliency and flexibility are the keys to success in this business. It is. It's just a flow. It's just, it's just what you do every day and you just go with it, you know, and you expect it. The expectations are there. And so, you know, as far as you know, you've, you're a wealth of knowledge, how do you, you know, for, for everything that you do, cause you said you're on several boards, we'll get to that here in a little, in a little while, as far as your education, I mean, you've got a lot of old school skills, you know, just growing up in that part of the country, you know, you, you grow up a certain way for sure. But uh, as far as how do you say, how do you search out education whenever you're looking for it what is the effective way to research what you're doing right now because we you know we have all the, well, it, the all the places that we go to that everybody kind of knows but what is your main go-to i mean how do you approach it well you know that's an interesting question so my grandfather martinez my my maternal grandfather was born and raised in the san luis valley and they farmed with horses, you know, when he was a kid and he knew how to do it, like really how to do it. And so from the time I was big enough to sit in a pickup truck, I was with that guy and he just poured that knowledge on me. Um, he bought a little dirt farm out in Olathe that had been, They'd given up on it because it was in such bad shape. And I think he bought that 12 or 14 acres for a thousand dollars back in the fifties. And, but he knew what it needed because he'd seen discarded land brought back. And so he hauled manure, he hauled onion skins, he hauled um, waste tomatoes, he hauled, chicken litter, he hauled rotten hay, he, you name it, any free biological matter that he could get his hands on, he hauled it and dumped it and worked it into that ground. Um, and he brought that piece of land from a, a, a solid sheet of white salt back to productive hay land. And so from him, I learned that a lot of it is just pay attention and do like we have for generations. Sure. And so that, that was for me is like, I don't necessarily need a soil analysis. I don't necessarily need a forage analysis. I don't necessarily need a liver biopsy. I don't necessarily need all of these things that so many people have to have to know what to do because the land talks to you. If you look at it, the plants will tell you, the land will tell you, and so will the cattle. I mean, you're, you're always looking at grass and poop because that's right. what's going to tell you what's going on. If the grass is super short and the poop is super runny, it's time to move to a new place or you need to start supplementing. If the poop is super firm, then you need some more protein. So you either need to supplement some good alfalfa hay or some cake or something. It's one of those things where the grass and the poop tell you what you need to do. Um, and those are things that people don't 
either pay attention to anymore or it's just some more of that lost science, the lost skills. Um, don't get me wrong. I test my forage and just so I know peace of mind wise that the, the hay that I'm feeding is adequate for my cattle. I mean, they, they tell you if they're hungry and they don't have good room and fill and they're walking fences, you know, they need something else. Um, we also do for or um, soil analysis, and that's really to kind of tell us where we're at as far as carbon and where we're at as far as micro and macronutrients in the soil. The soil here on Fruitland Mesa, which is the mesa that we live on, is really young, so it's super rich, but it's also very shallow. Um, and so it's one of those things where you have to pay particular attention on keeping the soil covered because it dries out very quickly. Um, but I mean, I, I love what they're doing like in the Midwest and I love what they're doing back East with like their mob grazing, intensive rotational grazing and all of those things. But our, I mean, we get seven inches of precipitation a year that includes the snow. And so it's totally different for us. We might be on a pasture for four weeks and then off of it for an entire year. Um, and so that's one of those things that you have to manage for that. And then you might go to an improved pasture like that property that I was talking about in the shadow of Needle Rock. And we'll go through all of those pastures three or four times throughout the summer and leave standing forage behind so the elk, the migratory elk that come in have plenty to eat while they're there, you know? And so it's one of those things where it, you just, it, you have to be able to pay attention to the different pastures that you're on. And the other thing too, is make sure you take notes. <laughs> I was about to say, how do, you do, how do you database all this stuff, right? Well, you know, I've got the uh, red book, that's like the cattleman's best friend, right? That like right is. now I'm writing, I'm writing calving stuff in here and I'm right. And I'm writing breeding for my fall calving cows. When I turn the bull in on that, well, it's got a calendar in it too. And so the spots aren't very big, but you can, um, make a little note of the code at what paddock you were in. You can use colored pencils or highlighters or whatever. I mean, mine are all marked up. Right. The beautiful thing with that property that I'm on Doug um, there at Needle Rock is we have a pasture plan. Like we have a plan on how many days we're going to be in each one of those pastures through the rotation. And then next to that, we have an actual and so every day when I move cows or second day or third day, I mark the map up and then we sit down at the end of the year and we look at our photographs and we look at our plan and we look at our actual to see if we need to tweak it and do something different for the next year um, or if it worked or if maybe and what we, we have been doing is reversing the rotation. And that's what I was talking about earlier about letting those different species get to different times of maturity to make sure that they all thrive. And so one of those paddocks has a lot of reed canary grass. It's a, it's a super fast growing grass. 
if left, you know, um, unmanaged, it'll grow 12 feet tall and it'll be so coarse that the cows won't even touch it. But it's one of those things where I might hit it every three weeks just to make sure I keep it mowed down because what I'm doing by keeping that really aggressive grass mowed down, I'm promoting other grass and clovers and stuff to come up where otherwise they would have been completely competed out. Whenever you talk about all this, I mean, it, 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 it is a workshop. It's a non, you know, nonstop workshop. You're, you brought up earlier that you're on some boards in the state of Colorado and they're pretty important because it's a form of networking. It's a form of information share and everything. Uh, how active are you in, in, in these boards? And, you know, do you go to conferences? Do you do these workshops? Do you provide a lot of education to ever, you know, you can and kind of strategically plan your message as far as, Hey, this is working. This is not, this is how we need to approach this year. you know, everything that you guys talk about? Well, absolutely. And it's one of those things where I, I offer pasture walks because there's so many young people who have kind of, you know, they've been awakened to our food system being broken and they're wanting to incorporate livestock into their um, truck garden or their orchard or their, you know, whatever their business is. And so I will come out with them and we'll spend a day walking their property you know, and they'll be taking notes and we'll draw maps of what the rotational grazing would look like. And we will estimate forage and identify plant species and all of those kinds of things. And, and I, and I rarely charge for it because I generally get so much in trade, whether it is fruit, vegetables, and, or advertising. If someone is looking for something, they send them to me to buy beef, they send them to me to buy honey, they send them to me as a another potential property for me to graze on. It's one of those things where, you know, a, a half a day's worth of time, two or three, four hours worth of time can pay me thousands of dollars of dividends in real value. Um, as far as the boards, I mean, like I'm on our irrigation water board, the Fruitland Mesa Irrigation Water Board, because that is the lifeblood of agriculture here on, on this Mesa. Mm-hmm. I'm on our domestic water board, both the Cathedral Domestic Water Company and the Fruitland Domestic Water Company Board of Directors, because without clean drinking water and without stock water, we don't do anything out here. Um, you know, I'm on the, the Delta... Rocky Mountain Farmers Union Board, they are fantastic. Anybody that's ever worked with the Rocky Mountain Farmers Union knows just how active they are in telling our story and communicating what's going on in Washington with what they're doing to us and us doing our best to have a voice and a seat at the table to make sure um, farmers and ranchers' voices are heard. Can you, can you repeat that board again that you just, I think people would be very fascinated to look into that. Yeah. The Rocky mountain farmers union. Um, it, it is, it is phenomenal. It it really is. And it's one of those things where they also also offer insurance, Rocky mountain farmers union insurance. And so four members 
it is at a greatly reduced rate. So you, you pay the minimum to become a member and then you have all of the benefits that go along with it. Um, and they are in Washington all the time. We're talking, we're having Zoom meetings, you know, with legislatures fairly regular, regularly. We have fly-ins, drive-ins, and, and of course now that everything's done on Zoom. And so when you're talking to those legislatures and you're like, hey, look at this bill, the wording in this bill is gonna hamstring us for this. It's one of those things where, and, and they didn't even realize it. They didn't necessarily think about it because they're not looking at it from an ag perspective, you know, boots on the ground. They're looking at it as, you know, another piece of litigation to do whatever, you know, it should be okay. It's like, well, no, we need to change this. Let's omit this and change this and do this. So no one could come back, you know, at a later date and, and enforce it and what that would do to us. Sure. Does that happen quite often? Or do you guys, I mean, it sounds like you guys stay on top of it as much as you you can, but I mean, that's a lot of monitoring too. It's a lot of, it's a lot of monitoring your representatives and everything. And you really have to have that, that relationship and know that you're being heard for one. I mean, you don't like to waste your air trying to, you know, make a claim. This is not fair. This is manipulation. So do y'all have a lot of effectiveness by doing it that way that you can, cause you have the farm and ranch freedom Alliance. You have a lot of different people, you know, that you have these types of board that, that one in Colorado, are they effective? Are they, are they just kind of putting a bandaid on stuff? I mean, is there something that you could see that could change within our legislation that's going on right now because of the manipulation that's going on? Well, we, we have been highly successful at the state level, mm-hmm. you know, here in Colorado, we've, uh, we, we passed the animal shares act, which allows you to sell non USDA inspected meat direct to consumer that is in Colorado. You can do that in Colorado. That is correct. Um, and then we have Rocky Mount farmers union has their own lobbyists that are there on Capitol Hill monitoring all of that stuff. Like they're paid people that that's what they do. Gotcha. And then of course they report back to the regional managers, which then report back to the state managers, which then report back to the local managers. And so anytime there's anything, you know, that needs a comment, we get an email out and you just get right on and you email whoever it is, whether they're sponsoring the bill, whether it's going for a vote or whatever and send it right off to them. That's it's good. I mean, that's this type, type of stuff that we really don't ever get to talk about. People don't understand kind of the process, what's going on, how you guys are, you know, it's, it's more than just ranching. Of course it's, you know, it's covering all the bases. Um, you, you brought up earlier because this is kind of our first, you know, first episode and you know, we had talked before and I, I get a, a lot of people reaching out to me, a lot of young guys wanting to basically maybe get back into this type of life. You know, it's a lifestyle. It's a low time preference lifestyle. It's something that requires skill sets and everything. And you brought up a point that, you know, you, you're seeing a lot of guys that are very interested in learning and they're, they're actually, you know, they're ambitious. They're, they're wanting to know what you're doing. And so kind of talk about that. How many people you got that do you, uh, do you have ranching with you right now? And tell us about kind of how the seasons go. Well, I mean, for me, honestly, I'm a one man band. Mm -hmm. Everything that I do 
Um, I try and design it to where I can take care of it myself. There are a couple of things where we have extra help. Number one, that's usually weaning because that's sorting the mother cows and the calves off of each other. And the other thing is branding. And we freeze brand everything, um, mainly because it looks really nice. That turns the hair hot, um, white. Mm -hmm. So it's very easy to distinguish our cattle from anyone else's cattle, especially when they go up on the mountain and they get mixed up with the, the um, pool cows. Um, and so for, and for the most part, that's our family. Like my mom and dad have come out and helped this. And my mother-in-law and father-in-law have helped this. My father-in-law has since passed away, but it's my wife and I and our two kids oftentimes. But one thing I do support is our Hotchkiss High School FFA. I guess now it's the North Fork Miners because um, they combined Hotchkiss High School and Peonia High School because they didn't have enough kids. And so they have a, a pretty active FFA program and they do a workers auction and a bull fry. Um, I'm on the board of directors for that, also the FFA alumni. And so I like to, to buy a couple of those kids at the workers auction. And I generally get the kids who are from town because number one, they don't have any preconceived notions on how it's supposed to go. And number two, they have never had any experience like that before. And so you have an opportunity to be number one, a positive experience working cattle because there's all these memes all over social media of like, you know, I'm sorry for what I said while we were working cattle you know, and all of that stuff, you know, and before you marry her, work cattle with her. And that way she'll know what you're like when you're working cattle and all of that stuff. Well, our facility is set up to where you don't even have to raise your voice. We can all communicate with each other. We do like a safe job talk before we start to make sure that everyone's on the same page. Everyone knows their job. And then we break for a big lunch and, you know, and then we finish up and all those kids go home and they are just, you can hear about their experience throughout the community. They're like, we went there, no one yelled at each other. We processed a hundred calves, you know, in five hours and, you know, it, it, nobody got hurt. And it's one of those things where if you take the time to be the change you want to be and give those kids the opportunity, boy, it pays dividends because then everyone wants to come work for me. They'll come up to me before the auction. Like, are you going to buy me this year? Are you going to buy me this year? We want to come work for you. Well, I may not buy them at the workers auction. If I have a project that I need help with, I may just call them up or send them a text or a message and say, Hey, what are you doing tomorrow afternoon? I need to put these side roll sprinklers together or I need to fix this fence or I need to go ride fence on the mountain or whatever. And boy, they just drop whatever they're doing and they're just excited and they come and they do a fantastic job. That's, that's really cool. I mean, that's, that's community building one-on-one. I mean, it is, it's keeping that network going and keeping that buzz and that vibration going with everything that you're doing. It's not about money. It's just about community. It's about, you know, true communication and, you know, actually, like you said, being the change that you want and it's so easy to do and, and we're not doing it enough these days. Um, you know, one thing I wanted to kind of go into as far as the, the, 
beef industry as you see it right now, you see it from your perspective and you see it from a national federal perspective. What do you see as the issues right now? We have a lot of things going on with the beef industry. You don't have to go too deep because we're going to have more than one conversation. But right now, what is bothering you about the beef industry that you are making a living and it is your lifestyle? (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Okay. Well, I mean, number one, let's look at the big four. Um, meat, meat processing companies. Well, for um, those people that do not know who are the, let's, let's, uh, let's reflect to the big four. We got JBS, Cargill, Tyson, and I guess we can say national. Right. National yeah. beef. Yeah. And so if you look at JBS Swift, it's, it's a Brazilian owned company and, you know, Two of the the owners, the the largest shareholders in that company, plea bargained out for embezzlement and and conspiracy and all kinds of stuff in their home country. Um, I mean, you you look at that and they're owning and processing billions of pounds of beef in our country. Do you think that the Americans are number one on their priority to take care of? I mean... I don't know. Um, it's, it's, it's one of those things where we, and we allowed it to happen on our own soil. Our, our legislature has allowed monopolies in the meat packing industry to continue to happen completely unregulated. And due to the USDA regulation, they have put many of the medium and small packers out of business because they can't compete. And we have seen that across the nation. I mean, it used to be that every town that had cattle in it had a meat packing plant in it, every single town. And now you can drive through towns all over in Western Colorado and there's boarded up meatpacking plants there. And that is just so disheartening to me um, for a couple of reasons. If we just simply look at stress on the cattle, if you can haul them 10 minutes to your local butcher shop, they don't know any different. They think they're just going to pasture move from one pasture to the other versus loading them up in the dark to drive an hour and a half to go to a USDA process facility to make sure that you can get your, your beef processed there. Um, it, it's that in and of itself really bothers me. And then you look at on top of that, the jobs, you have two, three, four, five jobs in each one of those towns, you know, everyone from the kill floor all the way to the retail front, you know, meat counters of all those, packing plants. And then you look at the offal, you look at utilizing all the guts and what good that can do. That's one thing that we've started doing here is composting the guts. Um, Why let all of those nutrients leave if I grew all of that grass here? Um, And whereas in the big processing facilities, it just goes into a big 
dumpster and it all just goes to the landfill because it's such a huge volume that you can't, you'd have to build a huge facility to be able to compost all those guts. Um, and then that's a, good, that's a good point right there. Let's, let's go back to that because that because of the conglomeration and everything, the size of these processing plants, look at how much waste is actually happening. Just, just right there, just, you know, with the compost and in the argument, you know, that communities can't process their own beef is something that is actually, it's a government, you know, rule regulations, federal governments. And why I want to bring this up right now is because Biden's barking a bunch out there about, you know, he's going to go after the packing plants. What is your perspective on that? Um, he's a professional politician. Sure. And so, so that's all they really do is talk. Yeah, I would I would I would appreciate that if he did, but I don't see you can't do anything now. I mean, you've already burned the barn down. You know, you can't run after it with a bucket now. The barn is burned down. Um, the thing that you can do is loosen your USDA regulations on the small guys and let them get back to business so they can do what they need to do. And that's the thing that I tell everyone is you think that the USDA inspector or that entire department cares more about your health than I do. I am selling you this beef that you're going to use to feed your friends and feed your family. And I'm going to look you in the eye and I'm going to shake your hand and I'm going to tell you that I care about you and I care about your health, and I'm going to provide you with the most wholesome product that I can within my abilities. You think that that government regulator cares about you as much as I do? Because it only takes one bad experience between myself, my product, and a customer, and that bridge is burned. That's done. All of the times we have these USDA recalls on a million pounds of ground beef, those are all USDA inspected facilities that had E. coli or salmonella. So the inspectors being there did not stop it from having whatever, you know, bacterial infection rampant in the meat. And that's, that is the root of regulation, you know, is, is self-regulation is way stronger than government regulation. Yeah, and it always has been. And, you know, they interject themselves in the, you know, it's all about safety and it's all about, you know, not getting sick, but they're the ones that are causing the sickness. They're the ones that are causing the bacteria because the the further, because in a processing plant with the big four, you are so far away from your pure animal protein. Whenever you are purchasing and sourcing your beef through you, Jason, you'd like you said you're shaking your hand and everything that time to your freezer or to your table you have control over it it is an inner you know interaction that you have that you trust and you verify and that you actually want to nurture you want to show some agency and you want to say, show some intentionality to that 
that is the most important thing right now that I'm working on is making people understand what we're trying to do here. The education, everything that you do for a living and for a lifestyle is we're trying to deliver pure animal protein to your brain and to your children's brain. That is the most important thing right now with the corruption, the corruption that we have in our food industry, the nutritional starvation that we're going through. I mean, we're not we we're not even getting started as far as the 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 nutritional value of what you do. So, you know, right now, I think would be a good time to let's let's talk about that. Let's talk about the beef that you do raise and that you do sell to your community. Yeah, you know, we are grass fed, grass finished, all natural, no hormones, no antibiotics. If I have a calf that gets sick, which we don't just leave them sick and let them die, we will doctor them. They get marked to go to town. They can go into the conventional food system. We aren't going to deal with it because we don't want to have any antibiotics in our meat at all whatsoever. And so that's that's why we do it like that. You know, I, I tell a story two years ago, I had a steer that was about six weeks from being finished. And it was probably one of the, the most beautiful steers I had ever raised. And it got a stick stuck between its toes and it went lame and it had a terrible infection and I could have just left it and taken it and butchered it with this bad foot. But instead what I did is I gave it a shot of antibiotics and I got it in and cleaned it, pulled the stick out, put a bandage and a dressing on that foot, put it in a pen, dry pen all by itself, nursed it back to health and then hauled that steer down to the cell barn. So a steer that I would have, you know, produced about $3,500 worth of finished cuts, retail cuts. I sold for $1,730 at the cell barn. And so, but that's just how passionate I am about doing it right every single time. And that's because, like you said, I mean, you you have to own it. I mean, you have to you have to basically prove that you know exactly what you're doing because you know that's they're going to come back to you. Let's talk about beef in the United States and how we get it. Let's talk about maybe you and I talked a couple of days ago, and you you told me about a I call it a it's the modern day I guess cattle drive from all the way down in let's say Brazil or Argentina let's uh let's talk about what that pathway is from from what happens down there in South America all the way to Mexico all the way to basically let's say the state of Texas or wherever yeah you know let, let's let's talk about all that humpy cattle that are down south of the border from there all the way Central South America um, you talk about a company, JBS Swift, that has cattle ranches also and feedlots. And why wouldn't it be in their best interest to bring that, those cheap cattle that, that they can raise and double crop down there in South America very cheaply into Mexico and and give give them of that full month worth of time in Mexico that they can then qualify for that. North America free trade agreement, um, Mexican beef trade, because we do the same thing with Canada. We have a lot of Canadian beef that comes south from Canada, same, same type of deal. So they bring that, that lean beef up, they bring it into Mexico, then they bring it into Texas and they finish it. 
and that's what they call their lean beef. And they bring it in to the processing facilities, they butcher it out, and then they take all of the, the fat trim off of our fat cattle, all of our super premium, you know, USDA choice and, and prime and fat cattle certified Angus beef. They take the trim, they grind it and mix it in with that lean beef and the lean trim. And that's what's, you know, a significant portion of your ground beef, whether it's McDonald's or whether it's at the grocery store or whatever it is, because we're shipping all of those premium cuts, we're exporting them. If you look at, we export almost the exact same amount of meat that we import from other countries. So we ship our super high end cuts out and then we ship the low end cuts in to feed the people who can't afford anything better than that. So essentially that's another tax on lower middle class and their health is by feeding all of this questionable lean beef that we import um, without them even knowing it. And they're they're not they're not aware of it because it has all the stamps, it has everything, prime USDA beef. You know, the, the labeling in this country is just amazing. You know, you can't believe pretty much any of it anymore. And so the the whole process of that, let's just talk about one pound of ground beef. What happens in that ground? How many cows are in that ground beef? They well, put you know, ice they, in it. they put nitrates in it. To, to, let's let's go through that. People need to. You guys go to the grocery store. This is what this is what you're going to eat. So when you're handling well, your helper, <laughs> well, and that's one of those things. You know, um, a lab took a pound of ground beef, and they tried to trace as many different DNAs out of it as they could, because that's the thing that we do in our registered cattle is we DNA test all of them. So we know exactly who the sire was, exactly who the dam was, all of the lineage clear back to 1889 when the first Angus cattle came over from Scotland. And so they took this pound of beef and they found, they claim 70 different DNA samples in one pound of ground beef. So that had meat from 70 different animals in that one pound of ground beef. I mean, that I thought that was fake news. I thought there was no way that could be. And then I talked to a friend of mine who is a chemical supplier for a, a meat processing facility. And he said, you would not believe how big the vats of trim that they are just dumping into this giant industrial grinder no rhyme or reason. That's why you have those outbreaks of a million pounds of tainted beef that gets recalled because, you know, they may run however many hours and just ground and spit out however much ground beef. Yeah. And then when they're grinding it up, you brought up, you know, a lot of times people, they notice there's a lot of water. <laughs> you brought up whenever they grind that stuff up, they also put ice in there as well. Well, and I actually learned that from a butcher friend of mine. Um, he was a, a store butcher in a big city and came to um, Colorado. And he actually, my dad worked with him at the grocery store in Hotchkiss when my dad and mom and I first moved to Hotchkiss from Delta right after I was born. And he 
taught my dad how to cut meat. And that was one of the secrets that when that beef, the steaks would start to get a little dark, they would trim them and then they would grind them once just the meat. And then they would add a little ice and that cold ice would pink that meat up and then also act as a little fill. So, you know, you're essentially padding it with water, you know, but it's ground fine enough that you can't tell the difference other than you make these quarter pound patties and you put them on the barbecue grill and you open the grill up and it's like that old Wendy's commercial where the little old lady's like, where's the beef? And you have this little quarter sized medallion hamburger left on the grill. Right. (laughs) You know, so it's one of those things where any little trick that you can do to make another buck, it seems like they will do with, with raw abandon and no consideration for kind of the morality of it. Right. Well, and that's where we are because people don't even have a good perspective perspective of what food is anymore. They don't know what food is. They, they don't understand truly where food comes from. It comes from a box, you know, and, you know, that's a lot of people just have never had that education of the whole process of, you know, that, that, that nutrition creation from the soil up. And so whenever you have people that come to you and, you know, they're buying their beef, what is, what is their most important reasons that you see? because you interact with a lot of people, you put up a picture today, you know, you were doing some shipments and everything. What, why is it, why is it people that come to you is what is their purpose? What is their purpose driven reason? You know, that's a really good question. And it, and it runs the full spectrum. I would say probably the majority 51% are truly health conscious like they are wanting to put in their bodies the most wholesome product they can find. And they believe that going direct to the farmer who has, I mean, a, a really high moral code in, in, in very high expectations of myself in, in the product that I'm producing. And they understand what our carbon footprint is. They understand that animal human interaction, you know, how we, we love those animals because I am there from conception all the way through to the day that they leave this earth. And I am passionate about it and I respect the animals and I do the best by them. And so they, they feel that that's part of the health because not only is it nutrition health, it's spiritual health as well. And so that's probably the majority of my buyers. I have a lot of people that are friends and neighbors who would buy beef at the grocery store anyways. And so they would rather know where their meat comes from and also support a friend and a neighbor. And then I have some people who are, I mean, I have some people who were vegans for a long, long time and discovered through major health problems that their bodies could not survive without animal protein. And so they want something that they know doesn't have any other added crap in it. And they want to be able to buy the cuts that they will consume 
And so those are the customers that come to me and buy, you know, only New York strips or they only buy fillets or they only buy ribeyes. Um, and then I have some people like there's some women who buy a pound of liver from me every month just so they can make beef pate. And that's where they get their shot in the arm for their health um, of all of those minerals and nutrients that you get from beef liver. So, and then of course, all of my family supports me as well. You know, I mean, I, one of my wife's cousins, it's a family of three husband, wife, and daughter, and they eat two and a half beeves a year. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and of course, and he's actually who turned me on to you or, or, or hooked us up. Right. He's a big time Twitter dude, big time Bitcoin dude. And, um, oh my gosh, that's a lot of, that's a lot of beef. You know, that, that's, 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 that's the true carnivore. That's the true carnivore diet. It really and, and, his wife, and his wife is an amazing cook. Wow. And we went over there for a steak fry and I was, when I'm cutting my own ribeyes and sirloins with a fork, it wow. just, I'm like, I'm doing something right. We're going to have to talk to them. People want to know, you know, everybody's so hungry for, you know, all this knowledge, you know, and you and I were talking about And one thing that I want to do, you know, this year in 2022 is, you know, this is definitely a kind of a awareness year. This is about education. This is really about, Hey guys, there's a different, there's a different opportunity, especially with kind of the food you know, industry that we're in right now with the chances of shortages, everything we know, we know all the problems we're, we're creating solutions here. So you and I had talked and I, I want to see, I want to kind of talk about maybe having a conference like a beef initiative conference in uh, Crawford, Colorado, June or July, sometime like that. Bring in the Bitcoin community, bring in the regenerative rancher, bring in the consumer, bring in the people that want to know more, bring in a couple of speakers to where we can really start doing this education delivery in, in person to where we're knowing each other and building this little network of people. And I want to do it across, you know, I want to do it in uh, Kerrville, Texas, and then I want to do it in Colorado. And so I wanted to talk to you about that. If we had that conference, I, you know, it'd be educational. What kind of access would people have if they came to Crawford, Colorado, you know, in the summertime for a conference? Well, that's one of those things, you know, the North Fork Valley, Hotchkiss, Paonia, and Crawford, we've got organic orchards, we've got um, vineyards and wineries, we've got organic farms, we've got farm tours. I mean, we've got mountain biking, we've got fishing. I, I mean, th- it's one of those things where in in our little piece of heaven here, um, and we talk, I, I mentioned this earlier, maybe I don't want all of those people in my backyard because then they won't want to leave, right. but it, it is an opportunity and, and it, there's so many beautiful things. I mean, you have hiking trails and mountain biking. It, it's, it, it's pretty amazing. I mean, you, you could see it and live it. And, and we have, you know, I have friends that are in do truck gardens and they do venues for weddings and they do and have orchards and, and press juice. And it's, it's one of those things where being in this community, doing what I do, being the beef guy, I have 
I am just so blessed to have so many amazing friends that are, I mean, everything from raising heritage hogs and it's just, it really runs the gamut of, of amazing abundance. It really does. It really does. And I think it's, you know, cause I, I, whenever you said that you were from, you know, Crawford and Hotchkiss, I knew exactly where it was. And then, you know, it kind of the light just came on. I said, people need to get to this part of Colorado because it's just that cool. And it is a destination spot. People are going to have to plan, you know, but across whatever, if they can come from across the world, I think we're going to pull this off. You know, I kind of said, this is what we're going to do. So this is going to be something that's going to be exciting that we get to talk about because what, what you and I need to do now is, really kind of start beginning an outline um this was a good kind of informative first podcast i think that you know we're going to intrigue a lot of people and we can kind of use it saying hey this is where we're starting come talk to us in june and come meet us in person we're going to have a really good curriculum we're going to do a workshop we're going to talk about decentralization of our food we're going to talk about communities we're going to talk about soil grass the cow itself and and this is this is going to be a fun year. So I want people to start tuning in. We're starting to get some attention. There's a lot of people, you know, saying, hey, we're going to make some changes. And, you know, I feel very lucky that you and I came across each other because every time we've talked, we're saying, hey, we've got a lot to say here. This is this is kind of a good time for us. And it seems like it's really lining up um, right now. You know, people are going to listen to this. How can they find you, Jason? What is the best ways to talk to you or to reach out to you? Just anything that you want to give as far as, hey, this is who I am. Come check out what I've got going on. Well, you know, we have Rick Ranches, W-R-I-C-H-R-A-N-C-H-E-S on Facebook and Instagram under Jason Rick. And of course, we're on Twitter. We have a very Spartan website, which I was going to put my 14-year-old son in charge of, but he hasn't quite bitten off on that yet. But um, <laughs> We can help you out in the Beef Initiative if you need that. Okay. We're, we're going to be doing service providing, too, within the Beef Initiative. It's pretty cool. So we'll talk. Well, and it's super exciting. You know, I, I'm hauling a big beef delivery over to Denver to the Front Range tomorrow, and then I'm going to be announcing at the uh, – Colorado Angus Association Foundation female sale. Um, I'm on the I'm the president of the board of directors for that, and so I get to see all those great people at the National Western Stock Show. They've got a new facility there, and so I'm excited to see it. And uh, I'm excited to see all of my new Bitcoin friends and some of my old Bitcoin friends over there as well. When, when is that happening? Um, tomorrow is, is when so I'm heading over there, and that's what I'm going to do in my delivery and then on thursday is when the sale is is going to be okay great because this will be a good time because today is uh tuesday night and this is going to release on wednesday night so that'll be good whenever you're there and talking to people you can kind of point them in this direction because we want to get as many people coming, you know, coming to the beef initiative. You know, we want to talk to more ranchers. I mean, you're going to introduce me to a lot of people that you deal with. And, you know, this conversation is going to evolve. It's going to expand definitely, you know, from the processing, you know, what are the problems? What are the bottlenecks? What do people need to be aware of whenever they're sourcing the protein from here on out, how you transition into going from superstore uh, uh, supermarkets to you, 
you know, what is that kind of that process? How do you make it kind of easy for, you know, people, what is your delivery radius? Are you just, you know, feeding your community or let's talk about, are you feeding Colorado? Everybody wants to kind of see that, you know, that supply chain that you've got going that you've, you've nurtured from the beginning and, you know, we can start identifying problems, solutions, and, you know, having that discussion and um, lead up to the conference. I think in, in June or July, whenever we do choose to do that hard date, I think we're going to have a lot of buy-in and think, you know, get that community and get everybody. If it's animal protein, we're going to talk about it. If, it, if it's produce, you know, they're going to, we're going to build something, a pretty cool two to three days that I think people would be well worth to come, you know, even the families, anything, because there's plenty of places to stay, plenty of places to camp, you know, that's not going to be an issue. So. Yeah, that's for sure. And it's a beautiful time of year. And that's the thing too, is, I mean, the, the summers are so mild here. It's, it's just fantastic. Yeah. We'll have to have somebody fighting over who gets to do the barbecue on Saturday night or something like that. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you might have to supply that cow. And that, of course you're going to supply <laughs> that cow. So, you know, I will. Yeah. Well, man, Hey, Jason, this is a good one. We don't want to go too long because we want to come back with, you know, a lot of good information that's going to carry us through like the, the rest of the winter and everything. Is there anything else that you'd like to say tonight before we kind of sign off and come back? here in a, you know, like a two to three weeks? Well, I mean, the biggest thing that I say, which is my battle cry, is every problem is an opportunity. So when you're down in the dumps and you feel like you've been kicked in the teeth, what God is telling you is you just need to look a different direction and refocus. So many people so easily give up but you just got to keep going. And that's the biggest thing about the, the hard times that we're in. Everybody is struggling and we all love each other and we are going to pull together and continue to build this thing. You're damn right. I mean, this is about love. This is about peace. This is about knowing strength. This is about taking true agency in your life and being purpose driven. This is about intentionality. This is about, you know, communication. This is about not paying attention to the distraction, but becoming the distraction in a way that comes from value and, and truth. And so I have, I have all the hopes that this is going to be one of the best years that people don't understand because we're going to take control. We're going to become our own food supply industry. You know, we are food intelligence now is going to be the rule of law and we're going to write that book. And, you know, it's going to be people like you that are doing it and you, you know, we're going to come back here in a year and things are going to be different and we're going to start taking control of our food again. And that's what I'm doing. And I'm, I'm not going to stop. I'm going to, you know, I got people saying, how far are you going to go with this? And I said, well, we're going all the way. I don't have anything else. Let's do this. So it's going to be, it's, we've got a lot of ammunition here that we haven't even talked about. So, but uh, Jason, thank you for joining us tonight. Um, we're going to be talking again and um, you know, God bless and appreciate you. Yep. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And I can't wait to talk again. You bet. Thanks guys for tuning in tonight. Uh, remember, look up Jason and uh, from everything that he has said today, let's, let's start the conversation. Let's start it on Twitter, you know, come and we'll, we'll start posting some more education beyond this uh, podcast and keep this narrative and the signal going strong. So you guys have a great night. Whenever you're listening to this, tell people about the beef initiative, talk about food intelligence, bring it to the kitchen table, bring it to your children's brains. We're going to bring some protein back into our systems. 
You guys have a good one.